Good morning. It is so good to see you guys. If you would take your Bibles and open it with me to Joshua chapter 11. Psalm 46 that we just sang is so appropriate for what we are about to read. Because Joshua and the Israelites are about to walk into their fiercest battles. We've been walking with them across the Jericho, um, across the Jordan, uh, up against Jericho, up against Ai, up against the five kings. But without a doubt, they are about to walk into their fiercest, most colossal, epic battle. This is the climax of the book of Joshua. The battle that they are about to walk into is the battle of all battles. And as a result of this battle, the 12 tribes who have been battling together, waging war as one, will then divide and each inherit the promised land. And they will, as individual tribes subduing their own lands that they've inherited, have skirmishes throughout the years from this point on. But this is the epic battle to secure the promised land that God has given them. So let's pick up with Joshua chapter 11, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazar, heard of this, heard of Joshua and the Israelites taking out the five kings and their kingdoms in the previous chapter, destroying them as God caused it to rain hellstones upon their enemies. When this king heard of that, he sent to Jobab, king of Medan, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ashef, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country. Up to this point, Joshua and the Israelites have been battling the kingdoms south of their promised land. But now this is going to be the colossal battle waged against the kingdoms of the northern part of the promised land. And to the kings who are in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chiniroth, and to the lowland, and in Nephoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, the Termites, no, I threw those last two in there, in the hill country, and to the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Did you guys see the first Jaws? If you recall in the first Jaws, that the main guy, the chief, was throwing fish into the ocean. They were deep into the ocean. They were in their fishing boat. And he caught his first glimpse of the shark that they were hunting. And Jaws came up out of the water And the chief saw it, his eyes got really big, and he just was stunned, and he began walking back. And this was his line, we're going to need a bigger boat. When Israel and the children of Israel are going up against this alliance, I'm sure that they thought that, we're going to need a bigger army. And God's response, as we're going to see, is, you don't need a bigger army, I've got you. Verse 4, and they came out. With all their troops, all of these alliances in the northern vicinity of the promised land. A great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore. Have you ever had a fire ant bed in your backyard and maybe you stepped on it and then in a second there's millions of fire ants? This is what's going on. There are 
millions, there are millions of people allying together against the nation of Israel. This is like the climatic scene in a war movie when you see who's going up against the, your, your, your heroes and then it's like there are so many people, it's like unimaginable and the camera keeps panning back over the entire horizon and over the entire landscape and you see that the enemies keep growing in number and they literally look like fire ants. This is the epic, colossal battle with many horses, with many chariots. They look like the sand that is on the seashore. Verse 5. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. And so it is for us. We have our colossal battles, don't we? Our colossal battles aren't called the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Hittites. Ours are called addictionites and loneliness-ites and disease-ites and discouragement-ites and addiction-ites and failure-ites and the list goes on and on. But Christ is victorious. The battle has been won. All the Lord is asking of Israel is not to be bigger, not to be stronger, not to be smarter. He's simply asking them, as he said in Joshua chapter 1, over and over, be strong and courageous. Don't trust in them. You don't need a bigger boat. You just need a clear glimpse of me. And so we're going to look at five myths that Joshua and the children of Israel had to cast down in order to be victorious in this battle. Because humanly speaking, there was no way that they were going to win. We just read, maybe you just kind of glossed right over it. These guys had horses and chariots. We don't read that Israel has chariots. This is the state-of-the-art technology here. In our day and age, this is like reading, they have F-35s. They have stealth fighters. They have... uh, They have drones. They have missile-guided, they have satellite-guided missiles. They have nuclear weapons. They have horses and chariots. This is the -the state-of-the-art technology. Whoever has the biggest weapons, the smartest weapons, rules the vicinity. These kingdoms have that. They've got their chariots. They've got their horses. They have millions of people in their army. There's no way that Joshua and the Israelites are going to be able to go toe-to-toe and fight them in their own strength or savvy or experience. But what they do have to do is cast down five myths that we face every day when we fight our battles. Because as we know going through this series, inheriting the promised land is equivalent to us walking in all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus on a daily basis. The victory is theirs, but God says fight because fighting is a window of opportunity for me to work through. That window is called faith. And in the same way, God says the victory is yours every day. You are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus, but fight. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from a position of victory because your fighting is a window of opportunity called faith through which I can operate. 
But they don't fight as we think that we have to fight, by being bigger, faster, stronger, or more savvy. They fight by casting down these five myths and replacing them with truths as they walk by faith. So let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that as Cassidy prayed earlier, none of us would leave here with a heart that remains unchanged, unaffected. For those who walked in in some sort of bondage, we pray freedom in Jesus' name. For those who walked in with some sort of secret compartmentalized aspect of their lives, we pray freedom in Jesus' name. For those who walked in with fear, with addictions, with disease, with sorrow, with anxiety, in Jesus' name, we pray health, wholeness, freedom, boldness, and victory through Christ. To you be the glory. Amen. Amen. Myth number one. God will never give you more than you can handle. Somebody show me where that is in the Bible. It sure spread throughout our thought process, even within our our Christian communities. But reality is, God specifically gives us more than we can handle, and he continues to stack upon us more than we can handle until finally we say, okay, I no longer rely on my strength, my ability, my intellect, my affluence, my achievements, and I trust in you and you alone. I trust in you entirely, only, exclusively. Let's look at this again. They're going into this colossal battle. Verse 4, and they look at their enemies, and they came out with their troops, a great horde, and the number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots, state-of-the-art technology, and all these kings joined their forces and came and camped against the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Make no mistake about it, this is more than Joshua and the children of Israel can handle. And so, if you find peace and and comfort in the thought, well, I know that God will never give me any more than I can handle, what you're saying in essence is, I can shoulder this. I'm still strong enough. I'm still capable enough. I can still do this apart from God. And I wonder if you're going through some sort of trial, you're weathering some sort of temptation, you're caught up in some sort of sin pattern that you've continually fallen to and you've continually, continually been defeated by. And this morning it's time that you take that off of your shoulders and you entrust it to the Lord and say, God, I confess, I admit, this is bigger than me. And I'm asking you to slay the giants before me. Look at what Paul said about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He said, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Watch this. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Let's go to verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Is that not exciting? Paul is saying, it was hard. This mission trip was hard. It was difficult. 
And we had sorrow on top of sorrow, anxiety on top of anxiety, suffering on top of suffering, setback on top of setback, struggle on top of struggle. Paul said, this wasn't random. This happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Whose power do you want to work for you? If you want your own power, if you want what you can bring to the fight, then rely on yourself. But if you want God's power, if you want what he can bring to the fight, then you rely on God. And reality is our flesh in this sanctification process doesn't go without a fight. And so sometimes because of our human nature, it takes severe trials and sorrows in order for us to release our Abilities and self-confidence and say, God, I trust in you and you alone. And watch the result of trusting in Christ and Christ alone. As Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. And he says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, Paul says that, Paul says that we experience suffering And we experienced, as a result of that suffering, Christ's comfort. And he says, and because we experienced Christ's comfort, we had something to comfort others. And he says, comfort others with the same comfort in which you've been comforted. And we experienced sorrow beyond our ability to withstand it. So we would trust not in ourselves, but in Christ. And in trusting Christ, we experienced his comfort upon us. And as a result... We experience his comfort through us. So the first myth is that God will never give you more than you can handle. He gives us more than we can handle so that we trust Christ, not ourselves, so that we can experience his power upon our life, and as a result, experience his power through our lives. Myth number two. God helps those who help themselves. Where is that in the Bible? That's right next to cleanliness is next to godliness, I think. In other words, it's not in there. God helps those who help themselves. So, reality is, God helps those who trust in Christ rather than themselves. Verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of them. And this encourages me that God had to continually tell Joshua, don't fear. You, know, you want to know what that tells me? Joshua probably struggled with fear. And he had to, all the way through the book of Joshua, hear God say, either directly or through people, don't fear, don't be afraid. Which means that for some of us, every morning before we wake up, we need to, in Jesus' name, cast down a spirit of fear. The Bible tells us, you have not been given a spirit of fear. What does that tell us? Fear is a spirit. You've not been given a spirit of fear but of power, love, and a sound mind. And therefore, we, in Jesus' name, before we get out of bed, must cast down a spirit of fear. And Jesus said, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Or you who are evil, if if we give uh, uh, our children a piece of bread, when they ask for bread instead of a scorpion or a snake, and we have wicked hearts compared to God's holiness and love, How will God now not much more so abundantly give us the Holy Spirit if we ask? 
So we see to walk in boldness and to walk in authority before we put our feet on the ground, before we have that cup of coffee, it's critical that we, in Jesus' name, cast down a spirit of fear and timidity and pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit of power, love, and sound thought. God said, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Just make note of that last statement. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we see that God is just not interested in what we bring to the table. He's not looking to help those who help themselves. He's looking to help those who realize they can't help themselves. So as a result, they turn to Christ and have 100% confidence in Christ. As Paul told the Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith in this. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. What are you going through? What is your trial? What is your battle today? What is your battle this week? Have you come to the place yet where you say, God, I can't do this on my own. And I need you to change my heart. I need you to move the mountains that block my path. I need your power to do for myself what I cannot do. Myth number three. This world has something in it that I need. This world has something in it that's going to bring me significance. This world has something in it that's going to satisfy my heart. So let's continue to read. Verse 7. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly. And I like this uh, military strategy of Joshua. He did not have a defensive posture. The entire time they're inheriting the promised land, they, they never fought from a defensive posture. They were very aggressively. In fact, just look at some of these words that characterize their, their strategic style. Suddenly, struck, chase, struck, left none remaining. And so this is how the battle unfolded. Verse 7. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim and eastward, as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left nothing remaining. Now, what does this have to do with significance? What does this have to do with finding satisfaction or security or strength in this world? Do you remember what God commanded Joshua before the battle began? Remember that state-of-the-art technology they had? We're talking about millions of people in this enemy that they're fighting. Millions of people. Horses. Chariots. And God said, hamstring all the horses. And burn all the chariots. What is hamstringing the horses? They're slicing the horses' hamstrings. They're destroying the horses' abilities to run. They're burning the chariots. Who in their right mind would do this? When they beat these armies, what do they inherit? They don't only inherit the plunder in their cities, which Israel indeed plundered, 
but they could have inherited this state-of-the-art technology. But watch Joshua's obedience in verse 9. And Joshua did to the horses and the chariots just as the Lord commanded. He hamstrung their horses and he burned their chariots with fire. What's God saying? God is saying, I brought you this far. I'm going to bring you the rest of the way. There's going to be a temptation for you to trust in this state-of-the-art technology rather than me. But so you continue to trust in me. I want you to hamstring the horses. I want you to burn the chariots. And Joshua did so. And that was an incredible declaration that he is going to trust in God and God alone. He understands who carried him through the battle. He understands who's going to continue to carry him through the battle. And what is it that we tend to place our confidence in? What are we trying to find? What do we try to find significance, strength, satisfaction, and security in, in the, from, from this world? In the book, uh, Search for Significance, Robert McGee unpacks four traps that we tend to fall into um, to find strength or satisfaction in this world rather than the unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The first trap is our appearance. You know, if I can just look a certain way, I will be significant. I can find acceptance. I will be worthwhile. I recently noticed that all of my clothes are shrinking. And then I, I thought, you know what? I'm serious. I thought all my clothes were shrinking, and it was frustrating me. And I realized I'm just expanding. I'm either going to have to, to buy a whole new size up, or I'm going to start losing some weight. And I didn't feel good about myself when I thought all my clothes were shrinking. But don't we tend to place our confidence, our worth, and our appearance? But you want to know something else? If we tend to measure ourselves by our appearance, which is incredibly fleeting, guess what? We tend to measure other people by their appearance as well and compare ourselves with others and compare others with others. And the Bible says we are to judge nobody according to the flesh. We are to size nobody up according to the flesh. The second trap that we tend to fall into is the acceptance of others. I feel good about myself if other people accept me, if other people feel good about me. The problem with that is sometimes when we are most obedient to the Lord, we are most unpopular with people around us. I have certainly found that to be true in my leadership as a pastor over the years. The more obedient I am to the Lord, the more ruthlessly obedient I am to the Lord, the least popular I oftentimes tend to be with people. But I don't find my acceptance in my appearance. I don't find my acceptance in other people's acceptance of me. I don't find my significance in my appearance or in other people's acceptance of me. I find my significance in the fact that Jesus loves me. He's washed me. I'm forgiven. He's clothed me with his righteousness. I am heaven bound. And I'm living a life to hear him say to me one day, well done, my good and faithful servant, in whom I am well pleased. We also tend to find our significance in our achievements. 
If we achieve a great deal in this world, then we are important. Our life matters. We've reached significance. And if other people have achieved a great deal, well, then we tend to compare them according to that flesh, and we view them as significance. But the problem with that is that Jesus says the least of these is the greatest in my kingdom. And we tend to place our significance on our affluence. But nothing in this world will satisfy. The comedian Jim Carrey has been saying some really crazy things in the press lately, but he got one thing right. He said recently, I wish wealth and fame upon everybody so they could see that it doesn't satisfy. But these four traps are something that we must, in Jesus' name, cast down every single day. I will not find my significance in my appearance. I will not find my significance in my acceptance, achievements, or affluence. I will find my significance in the fact that God loves me. Jesus died for me. I am cleansed. He's clothed me in his righteousness. And I'm living a life to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And furthermore, I will not size anybody up and measure their significance according to their appearance, acceptance, achievements, or affluence. Because I will never lock eyes with somebody that God does not love, that Jesus did not die for. And... However the world esteems people, we all come to the cross equal as sinners. And through faith in Christ, we are clothed equally as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This was an incredibly bold step of obedience and faith that Joshua made. When he burned the chariots and hamstrung the horses, he was saying, oh God, you've carried it this, this far. You're going to carry, carry us the rest of the way. We're not a superpower because of our might. We're not a superpower because of our military uh, technology. We're a superpower because you are with us, period. And this is the same for the United States. Make no mistake about it. We are not a superpower because we have 350 million people and more nukes than anybody else. We are a superpower because God has blessed us. And should God ever remove his blessing, we will cease to exist as a force of good it's all about God it is all up to God what do you need to cast down your confidence in and say God I am going to recommit to finding satisfaction only in you for Joshua his temptation was to find significance in all of these horses and these chariots Jesus ran into a woman in John chapter 4 and her tendency was to find satisfaction in this world, security in this world through men, her relationships. What is it for you? What are you finding security in, satisfaction, significance, strength in? Jesus told this woman, you've gone from man to man. You've had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not even your husband. That's six men. And her heart was more broken, more wounded, more longing, more searching than ever before. And then Jesus said to her in John chapter 4, verse 13 through 15, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
What water is he talking about? He's talking about the water of appearance, the water of acceptance, the water of achievements, the water of affluence, and for her, the water of, the water of affections. And Jesus said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is this water? It's the Holy Spirit. It's a thriving, dynamic, communicative relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit flows into us, expands, and then explodes out of our life into the world around us. Where are you finding significance? Are you willing to cast that down and trust in Christ and Christ alone? What do you need to repent of? What chariots do you need to burn this week? What chariots do you need to burn today? In your heart, you have to burn some chariots today and hamstring some horses. Say, I'm not going to find significance or satisfaction in this anymore. No. Because think about how long you've been drinking of those waters and look at your heart. It hasn't satisfied it. Jesus is is speaking the truth, isn't he? He said your heart is thirsty again. And you're more broken and wounded than before you drank. And the more you drink, the more broken and wounded and dysfunctional your relationships become. The more impaired your, your ministry becomes. The more joyless your life becomes. Stop drinking. From the waters of this world, for your strength, security, satisfaction, significance, repent, return to Christ through a spirit-filled, dynamic relationship with the Lord. So they burned the chariots, hamstrung the horses. How awesome was that? It was bloody. It was fire, it was smoky. It was messy, if you think about it. We just read right through that. I mean, these battles, I mean, swords are, are swinging and, uh, you know, heads are being cracked in half and jugulars are being burst wide open. I mean, it was bloody. Swords are being thrust through people's hearts. Horses are being hamstrung. To burn your chariots, to hamstring your horses, it might have to get messy. You might have to hurt some people's feelings. You might have to shut some doors. You might have to allow people to be angry at you. But you have only one to please, and that's Christ. We live for an audience of one. That's who we seek to please, the one in whom can satisfy, or the only one in whom can satisfy our hearts. Myth number four. Trials are bad. Trials are bad. Let's flip the page and look at verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden all of these kings' hearts. You remember uh, last week we saw that the Hittites from Gibeon really had soft hearts toward the Lord? They were strong fighting men, but they realized God was with Israel and Joshua, and they deceived Joshua and made an alliance with them. It was a great story. You remember that? Their hearts were softened. And they were allied with and friends with Israel for centuries as they, as a result, helped serve the temple. 
the tabernacle and the temple. God, I think, softened their hearts. But these kings, God hardened their hearts. For it was the Lord's doing to harden these kings' hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So when all of these armies ally together and they're coming against Joshua and Israel, you can look at that and you can say, oh, this trial is so bad. But we see behind the surface in the spiritual realm that it's God who guides hearts and it was God who hardened all of these kings' hearts with pride and stubbornness and bitterness and fear and hatefulness to come against Israel. And as a result of that, they were destroyed. And that was God's agenda all along. So when you see the trials that are coming against you, we, ha- we have a tendency to say, okay, discomfort is bad, trials are bad, suffering is bad. But it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to trust the Lord. And every time we trust the Lord, we experience God. Now, as far as your trial, I don't know if it's a re- direct attack from Satan or demons or if Satan... Uh, fueled somebody else, and they sinned. And because of those consequences of somebody else's sin, it's affected your life. Or it's the result of your own mistake. Or if it's the mysterious sovereignty of God. Or like Job, some unique blend of all of the above. We have a tendency to think trials are bad, but they're not. Whatever caused the trials, they are not inherently bad. They are inherently bad good because they are an opportunity to repent, to become more Christ-like, to trust the Lord, and that as a result is a window of opportunity for the Holy Spirit to accomplish a sanctifying work in our life that makes us look more like Jesus, act more like Jesus, minister more like Jesus in all of his authority and power. Let's look at James chapter 1 verse 2 and 2 through 4 to, to corroborate this. We read, Count it pure joy, count it all joy, my brothers, not if, in other words, not maybe, but when it's going to happen. Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. How are we going to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing? Our steadfastness increases. How does that happen? Well, we trusted the Lord. How does that happen? Well, a problem presented itself as an opportunity. Not when you ran out of gas or you had a flat or you had that accident or somebody said something hateful about you. Or you have to look for another job. Or a family member has gone off the, uh, you know, in, into some addiction into the deep end or whatever it is. I mean, the, the, the list of problems can go on and on and on. And we tend to think trials are inherently bad. They're not. They're inherently good. Trials are inherently our enemy. No. Trials are inherently our friend because they're an opportunity to trust Christ more. A window through which God shapes our character to look like Jesus and act like Jesus. This isn't some isolated verse. This is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. And we read, rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance or endurance. 
and endurance, character, and as a result, the love of Christ is poured out into our hearts. So what trial do you have? What opportunity do you have to exclusively trust Christ? Myth number five. Myth number five. Trials are a one-time event. You know, we had that colossal battle in our life. Now it should be smooth selling from here, right? You know, some people have said, you know what? I think there's a contradiction in the Bible because we read that Joshua subdued the land. He conquered the land. And yet we continue to read about battles. As the tribes settle into the geographical areas that were allotted to them, there are still skirmishes that they have to fight. We see that God, through Joshua, wiped out these major armies, and yet, as they inherit the land, each of the tribes then goes on continually fighting battles. That is no contradiction. That is a spiritual truth that we need to understand. Our salvation is a one-time event. Not a process. We are saved by grace through faith in a second like a flash of lightning. We are born again. We are saved. But that leads us into a process of sanctification. We are saved by Jesus and heaven bound, but we are sanctified through the Holy Spirit for the rest of our lives. One day we'll trade sanctification in with glor- for glorification and we'll be face to face with Christ. But we were saved from the penalty of sin in a moment. We were saved from sin and death. That was an event. But we are being saved from the process of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And this is a process that lasts from the moment we got saved to the day that we take our last breath here on earth. And one day we'll be delivered from this process of sanctification And we'll be face-to-face with Christ when we are delivered from the very presence of sin. Which is why Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. He's speaking to our sanctification. He's speaking through the daily opportunity we have to pick up our cross and follow him. And if a trial should come against us, then we shouldn't be caught off guard by it because Jesus said that it would come. And every day, we have a fresh new opportunity to trust in Christ and to follow Christ. Verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. That's equivalent to them entering in to their salvation, and yet these tribes continued on with these little skirmishes throughout the pages of Scripture. And so it is. We enter into our relationship with Christ. We are saved and born again, and yet every day we've got to pick up our cross and we've got to follow. We have to deny ourselves daily and make sure that we're drinking deep from satisfaction in Christ and not this world. Would you stand with me, please? So in closing, I just want to ask you, what horses do you need to burn? Or what chariots do you need to burn? What, what horses do you need to hamstring to repent and to find satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone? Would you bow your heads with me, please? I wonder if you would say, gosh, you know, yeah, I, I can see 
There's some areas in this world I've been trying to find strength, security, significance, satisfaction from this world. And I said, I get what Jesus is saying. My heart's still thirsty. If you can identify an area like that in your life, raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you. All right, me too. My hand's up also. Would you be willing to burn those chariots today? Hamstring those horses? Say, I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to let my heart drink of those waters any longer. I'm going to repent of those areas. And I'm going to drink deep of Christ. And I'm going to renew my relationship with Christ. How many of you like Joshua might have a, a tendency toward fear? Just raise your hand. Yeah, me too. Me too. Maybe you just need to cast down a spirit of fear and timidity in Jesus' name. And you just need to pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit of love and power and soundness of mind. Father, you saw those hands and you know, you know what needs to take place in everybody's heart. We pray that you would do your sanctifying work so that we not only walk more like you and look more like you, that's just a result, but we love you more. We're more in love with you. Our hearts are filled with your spirit. We're overflowing with peace and joy and love. So let's just respond and worship, and the altars are open to present your body a living sacrifice.